We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. I do believe, I mentioned March Madness. I am a sports fan. I do believe that the NCAA tournament is the Basketball tournament is the greatest championship in sports. Uh, it's win or go home. Anybody can play. You get to root for teams that you've never even heard of. I was hollering for a team the other night. And I was mispronouncing the name of the school. I'd never heard of Fairleigh Dickinson. And I was, so I'm hollering for Farley Dickinson all night long till I realized that it was Fairleigh Dick Dickinson. It's just, it's fantastic. Uh, uh, this is a, Wonderful time of year for a lot of reasons. We got a little bit of warmer weather now. Um, thank God it's warming up. We've got, we're leading up to Easter, a wonderful season in the life of our church. Um, it's just been a, a fantastic time. And it's going to be a great night. I'm glad that you are here tonight to worship the Lord together with us, study His Word. If you have your Bibles, take them and open them with me to the first gospel, Matthew chapter 13. We're continuing in this series that we've been talking about recently, written in red. We're looking at the words of Jesus. Some Bibles have those in red letters, and your Bible might be a red letter Bible. And so tonight, as you're taking a moment to turn there, um, you know, most of us hear about the, the parable of the seeds, or you'll hear the parable of the sower. Uh, and you may even already know that parable, right? Jesus talks about that there was a farmer who went out to scatter seed. And so oftentimes people will talk about it being the parable of the sower, but it's really not about the sower. It's really not even about the seed. What's it, what is the parable really about? It's about the soil, right? Because the seed falls on different types of soils, right? What was, what was one of the soils that, that the seed fell on? Does anybody remember one of the, one of the soils that it fell on? Rocky soil, all right. What, what, what was the other one? It fell where? Among thorns or bramble bushes, yes. And what was the other one? Good ground, right? Tonight, we're going to skip straight um, to Jesus explaining that parable um, to his disciples. And then I want us to talk about how important that is in our own understanding. We began a series a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we were out for spring break, but a couple of weeks ago, we started talking about cultural Christianity and the dangers that it poses. And so we're going to follow that up tonight uh, as kind of a mini-series as part of this Written in Red series that we're doing. But we're going to follow that up tonight, and we're going to look at this parable and talk about the implications of what that means for all of us in doing ministry as Jesus explained what happens when the gospel is sowed. Because remember, the gospel is the seed. All of the seed, the gospel didn't change, right? The gospel didn't change in this parable. It was the same seed, the same gospel has to be the same. It may even be different people sowing the seed, but it's the same gospel. It falls on different places or it falls on different hearts and it is responded to obviously differently. So, so let's hear from Jesus himself. He says in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 13, we're going to read through verse 23 together. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. 
The one who received the seed that fell on the rocky places is the man who hears the word of God and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on the good soil is the man who hears the word of God and understand it, and he produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So let, let's, break that, let's break that apart really quickly as we walk through this. This is what it means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart, and this is what was sown along the rocky part. If it is impossible to be saved without a full understanding of the gospel. Now, I want to be careful when we say that. Can a child be genuinely saved? Sure, sure, a child can be genuinely saved. I think what I've had to have, uh, where, where a lot of people have struggled that have grown up in church, and I say a lot of people, I would venture to say that a large percentage of people even in this room have struggled with what I'm about to tell you, if you grew up in church. If you grew up in church, and genuinely were converted at some point during your years in church. If you continued to grow in faith, now uh, most of us, our lives look like three steps forward and two steps back a lot of the time, but we're still netting a step. So if you look at the, your life, if you got saved at 10 years old, hopefully by the time you're 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, you have seen sanctification. You've seen growth in godliness. You've seen becoming more like Jesus. You've seen spiritual disciplines increase. You've seen growth in that. Well, as we spiritually grow, we have a deeper understanding of the things of God. We have a hunger for the things of God, a thirst for the things of God. We may understand more scripture. We're exposed to more preaching. We're exposed to more Bible study. So because of that, when, as we grow, sometimes people will wonder, well, did I really know enough when I was 10? Did, did I really get it when I was nine? Was I, was I actually really saved? Now, I've got to be careful with teaching this because I believe that there are many false convert children. Now, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to say this to scare anybody, but we have been way too quick in Baptist circles, and I can say this because I grew up in this. I could, we could have a vacation Bible school and have 400 kids here, and we could announce the next Sunday that 300 of those kids got saved. Because there's a way to give an invitation where the entire group will come forward, raise their hand, fill out a card. It, that happens at youth camps. It happens at Disciple Nows. It happens at Vacation Bible Schools. It happens at rallies. It's abused. It's, it's one of the reasons why if I ever let a person come here to preach, I always watch to see how they do an invitation. Because more damage can be done to the gospel by people believing they're converted when they've never actually given their life to Christ than if they'd never stepped foot in a church. Now that's a mouthful, but I believe when, when preachers take on the role 
of looking like what the caricature of a used car salesman in peddling the gospel, thinking that somehow they're going to be judged by the number of people that fill out a card or walk an aisle, that we're in a dangerous place because if you as the preacher took credit for how many people came forward anyway, then you don't understand the gospel and you shouldn't be preaching it because you as the preacher never saved anyone. So I want to be careful as we understand this because children certainly, I think there are many who we are too quick, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you my spiel on this because I get this question a lot about people's children and grandchildren. They'll say, Brother Larry, how do we know when they're ready? That's a great question. How do we know when a child's ready? Um, I don't think there is a specific age. In other words, they have to be eight or they have to be 10. That's gonna vary. It varies. Intellect does have something to do with that. Maturity has something to do with that. Exposure, attention, all of those things go into that. Emotions and heart. But here's, and there are, we could spend an entire Bible study talking about this. But one thing I will tell you about children is if they can put it down allow them to put it down. And what I mean by this is, if your six-year-old says, mama, I want to get saved, and you say, that is wonderful. Let's talk about what does that mean. And you have a conversation about that, and then the child next immediately wants to talk about Barbies or going to the movies or where they're going to go eat. There's nothing wrong with that. Allow them to change the subject and allow it to inform you that this is wonderful. We just had a great spiritual conversation, but they're not ready. They are, if you truly, I don't care how old you are, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you about your need for salvation, you have to be old enough for it to overwhelm you. And when I say overwhelm you, if I truly understand my sin, whether I'm eight or 80, if I truly understand my sin, if I truly understand that I need Jesus' forgiveness and that he has got to save me, it is going to be impossible for me to at one point talk about my need for salvation and the next breath talk about my army men, right? That doesn't mean that, that, is, that there's something wrong with that. That is wonderful. And I think we as parents need to foster those discussions and have those and allow them to pick that conversation up and allow them to put it back down. But that is a great indication of if they are having spiritual conversations, it does not necessarily mean that they are ready to make a commitment to Christ. It does mean they are going to be discipled. We need to answer those questions and be there for them. But I got convicted when my own children were coming through because they did grow up in church. Many of you taught them in preschool and taught them in Sunday school. And when both of mine were four or five, if I, could, if I would ask them, how do you become a Christian? They could have kind of told you, well, you have to confess your sins and ask Jesus to come into your heart. And if I would have asked either one of them at four or five, do you want to pray to receive Jesus? Both of them would have said yes. And I am very confident that neither one of them was, was at all ready for that decision. Now, I'm not telling you there's not a five-year-old. Don't hear me say there's not one in the world that's ready. I'm not talking about your kids. I'm talking about mine. But what we've got to be careful of is that whether it's a child or an adult, if they don't have an understanding of what the gospel means, you cannot be saved. Now, 
hopefully all of us are developing in that understanding, meaning we're learning more and more and more. But at its absolute base, if you do not understand what sin is, and you do not understand that you're a sinner, and you do not understand that there is a God that you have offended by that sin, and you do not understand that you're separated from Him because of that, and you do not understand that you need some, to be forgiven of that, and the, the only way that you can be forgiven is by Jesus paying the penalty for your sin, and you don't understand that Jesus died to pay the penalty for that sin, and you don't understand that Jesus rose from the grave to defeat that sin, and that you have to ask him for forgiveness to take over your life, if you don't understand those basic concepts, that's what it's talking about. People will fall, the, the Satan, it will come and it will pluck it out of their hearts because there's not a deep enough understanding. And I think even in Baptist circles, we have gone far, to, we have gone way too far down the line of anti-intellectualism. Now, when I say anti-intellectualism, everybody doesn't need to be a PhD. Everybody doesn't have to be a scholar. That's not what I'm saying. But we have gone way too far down the line of saying, you, listen, you don't have to really study. You don't really have to, to grasp it. All you need to know are just these simple things. And on, honestly, what I just said, that is all you need to know to be saved. But if you say you're saved and you don't care to ever know more, you probably didn't understand what I just said. You, you follow? If I'm truly saved by what we just talked about, then it should produce in me something that now that becomes so important to me that I continue to want and desire more of that. So a gospel understanding is absolutely essential. Let, let's, let's keep going. The one who received the seed that fell on the rocky places is the man who hears the word at once and receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. Now, a lot of people have trouble with this verse. Because as Baptists, what do we say? Once saved? But hold on. The one who received the seed that fell in the rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it. But it only lasts a short time and he falls away. Is that somebody that's losing their salvation? This is important. You cannot lose what you do not have. And the person that it's describing, and the reason is we, as, as in our Baptist life and even in our theology, the reason that verse bothers some of us, I had a conversation um, with someone the other day who is not Baptist. And we were talking about theology, and he said, this person told me, said, I'd never step foot in there. And I said, okay. I get that from time to time. People got various reasons, you know, whatever it might be, hypocrites in the church, or this person did me wrong on a deal, or whatever it is. And I said, well, okay, what's troubling you? Um, he said, well, I know what y'all believe. I said, okay, what do, what do we believe? He said, y'all believe that as long as somebody comes, just walks the aisle and signs a card and y'all baptize them, it doesn't matter how they live, that they're saved no matter what they do with their life. 
because that is the interpretation that the world sees of our saying once saved, always saved. So we say once saved, always saved. The world hears, well, once you make a profession, you're always saved. That is not what we are teaching. We are teaching that once you truly come to know Christ. So it is possible. It is absolutely possible for someone to be, have a spiritual experience and not be saved. People can get convicted by the Holy Spirit and not be saved. Do you know that? People can get led right up to the place and not be saved. People can go into a crying fit and not be saved. People can get right there. And what the Bible is talking about is that there are a lot of people who think they are saved because they were almost saved. Now on this sheet, there's a question that I think is an important one. It's all the way down at the bottom, but we're going we're to get there. But I want you to go ahead and see it. Number four, almost saved is totally lost. Almost saved is totally lost. It's what we talked about before. But Lord, didn't I? There were people that, that cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Not saved. And so what we need to be clear about in this passage is we need to get past authenticating people's salvation because they came down or they got emotional or they came one Sunday. I, I have almost flirted with the idea of postponing baptisms. Now, let me explain to you what I'm talking about. Somebody comes down, we're saved. It's not my job. I'm not their judge or their jury. God is their judge or their jury. But I have been in ministry long enough now to know that I have dunked a whole bunch of people who are lost as a goose. Say, well, how do you know that? You know a tree by its fruit. And you come down, you have an experience, maybe you get convicted, maybe your life was falling apart, maybe you had an addiction, maybe your marriage was in trouble, maybe you had financial problems, maybe you lost a job, you were in a bad place, you were searching, you were hungry, so you, you came and, and you had an emotional reaction and you connected with something and maybe even were convicted by the Holy Spirit. But what we know is, is that if you don't continue to walk in salvation, you're not saved. Not that you earn the salvation, but what it is proving is that you never had it. That's what this verse is teaching here. So con continue to read. Verse 22, the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word of God, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. If you have ever planted anything, how many of you garden at all? Anybody in here garden at all? All right. You think I'm hard-headed. I'm just, I'm hard-headed. And, and this February, it hit 87 degrees. Hottest it's ever been. Ground got hot. Everything's budding out. Trees are budding out. Fruit trees are budding out. So I said, you know what? I'm planting those tomatoes. I'm not waiting on Good Friday. I'm going to get ahead of the game, baby. So I went and bought, they had a special on them. 
It's $2 for three, the little ones, you know. So I bought nine tomato plants, put those jokers in the ground, dug it up, put my fertilizer in there. I got, up, got them going. And they shot up, boy. I mean, I, had, I mean, they were almost a foot tall. And I was walking out there. I'm ahead of the game. Because, look, there are some gardeners in here. I mean, like serious gardeners in here. And we used to have a couple of old men that when I say they competed, they lived down the road from each other. And they, see, they, they would see how, many, how tall they could grow their tomato plants. They would see who could win, who grew the most tomato plants. And if you went and visited the other one, you got to hear about how his were better than the man down down the street. And so so I, I tried to learn a lot from them. And they said, Good Friday, Good Friday, Good Friday, Good Friday. So the other day, here it comes, it's gonna be 25. I thought, you gotta be kidding me. So I walked out there, I said, Well, y'all aren't getting my tomatoes, and I I put like uh, black plastic covers all, all over tomato plants, put a little brick on there. I said, ha. I got it. Y'all ain't getting my tomato plant. So anyway, it hit 25 the other night. So the other day I went out there and I, I leased out there. I picked up. I had a little piece of brick on top of the first one. I picked it up. I tell you, that sucker was dead. I mean, every one of them. I mean, I'm talking about dead, dead, like frozen, gone. We got, we got to replant them. They're gone. And I've noticed in my gardening, I may replant those tomatoes or I might buy tomatoes. I don't know because I'm, fr I'm just frustrated. Like I just, it, it's frustrating. You're out there and they're dead because one of the things I'm bad about is I'll get the little raised bed going and plant these tomato plants. But come about June when everything starts growing up in that raised bed, all the weeds and everything else, I get so sick of fooling with it. I just will just let, just let it let it go. And if you let it go, you let it go, right? We ought to be able to understand the point he's making. You can't just plant seed and just hope that it's going to do right if it's not taken care of because everything else will choke it out. And there are a lot of people, and you see this too, that they express some interest in the things of God, they express some interest in the Bible, they express some interest in the gospel, but relationships and jobs and hobbies and everything else becomes more important. So because it becomes more important, the gospel gets relegated to a lower place or no place at all. And here's one thing about the gospel. It can't be second. It can't be third because it's the gospel. So it's got to be first. And so that's the point that's being made there. The one who received the seed that fell on the thorns is the man who hears the word, worries of life, and deceitfulness of wealth choke it out. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word, understands it, produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Um, it is amazing. It's not just talking about it is certainly, it is, it is talking about replicating disciples, but it's talking about even more than that, that your life would make a tremendous impact because of the gospel. So I, I just, I put some questions here that I think are really good discussion questions that come out of this passage. Do we encounter people who trust more in having recited a prayer, baptism, and church membership 
than actually submitting to the Lordship of Christ? Is there a difference in a decision and a disciple? Absolutely. Sometimes people say, you ask them, are you saved? I made a decision when I was 10. That's not wrong, but I've got a follow-up question. I want to know not just about your decision when you're 10, but if you're 40, you ought to be able to tell about your life with Christ now. I've got a very good friend of mine. I'm going to try to get through this, all right? I've got a very good friend of mine right now who is having a rough time. He's in bad shape health-wise. And um, been spending some time with him and talking a lot. But when I say radically saved, this man was radically saved. I mean, it is no doubt. When God got a hold of him, there is a part A to his life and then the saved part of his life. And I shared this with somebody recently uh, about him. And this is one of the greatest compliments I think I could give anybody. I've never seen anyone who glories more in who they became in Christ, not what they were before they met Christ. All right? Most of the time when we ask people to give testimonies, we try to find people that have the worst, like they were prostitutes and drug addicts, and they will spend 90% of the testimony telling you about how they lived in this sin and this sin and this sin, and then they'll say, and then I met Jesus and he delivered me. Now that's wonderful. But a better testimony is that the very small part of, your, of our testimony is what we were before we met Christ, and the overwhelming part is since we met Christ. We need to be people who don't under, just understand that we were saved, but also understand that we are being saved. That's what the Bible says, that we were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. All of those things are true. So that's an important aspect of discipleship. Um, there's a difference in reciting a prayer and truly making a commitment to Christ. Is it possible to preach the gospel, we talked about this briefly a couple of weeks ago, is it possible to preach the gospel and not offend people? Is it possible to preach the gospel and not offend people? The answer is unequivocally no. Somebody said the other day, said, um, Sometimes I wish you'd call people by name. I don't mind calling people by, by, by name at all. Let me give you one. What Joel Osteen does is not a sermon. And I, I mean, I hope he's listening to this. I don't hate Joel Osteen. He's a, he's a false teacher and a wolf. And there's a lot of people that are going to go to hell and they're going to say, but Lord, I sat under Joel Osteen. And he's... I could lame a lot of people, but let me explain to you what I mean. He has made millions off of refusing to offend. Tell you what you want to hate. The Bible, the Bible has a description of Joel Osteen. There will be teachers who come for what itching ears want to hear. So I tell you you're wonderful. I tell you you're beautiful. 
I'll tell you how wealthy you're going to become, how you're never going to get sick, how your wife's going to love you, how you're going to get a better looking woman than the one you've got now, how your children are going to get better, how everything's going to be fantastic, all everything's going to be wonderful, and that's God's plan for your life. But he is just an example, maybe because, and the reason I use his name, there's a lot of names I could call, and they are not just in 10,000-person churches. They are infesting churches all over the place, in the South as well. They may not be as well-known, but we have adopted this line of thinking that there can be a non-offensive gospel. So we don't want to offend people. We don't want people to be offended. So we just want to communicate a message that's more palatable to people's ears so that they will like it. The thinking being, if we look more like the world, we can attract the world. It is the antithesis of the New Testament. You say, why do you have to offend people? The goal is not to be personally offensive. The understanding is that the Word of God offends at its core. You cannot be saved before you're offended. Can you, without me explaining that, can you explain that? You cannot be saved before you are offended. Everybody in here ought to be able to explain that. You have to admit that you are fallen that you are wicked, that you are separated from God. And so one of the ways that the gospel needs to be, the, the, in my estimation, the greatest missing ingredient of the gospel is not grace in our time. People talk a lot about grace. It's not even sacrifice. People talk a lot about sacrifice. It's not the resurrection. There are a lot of people that are going to talk about the resurrection in a couple of weeks on Sunday. The biggest missing ingredient of the gospel in our age is the lack of preaching of the law. Now, I know the objection, but wait a minute. We're new covenant. We're not under the law. The only reason you know your new covenant is because of the law. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. So the, when I say the preaching of the law, not that you are saved by the law, we need to be people that preach that you're damned by the law. It's one of the reasons the, the Ten Commandments needs to come back. But I almost think it's humorous because most people that are arguing for the Ten Commandments to be posted in places... Right? And I'm all for that, by the way. Don't. I'm all for the Ten Commandments being posted everywhere. I think it's wonderful. But the Ten Commandments are not so that children would look at them and say, I'm going to try to do those. It's not what they were originally for. What were the Ten Commandments for? To show you that you're a lawbreaker. If you read the Ten Commandments and you go, Man, I'm doing good. Then you are just like the rich young ruler. That's what Jesus did. He only named a few of the... You remember that? Uh, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives a few of the commands, not even all of them. He said, all of that I've done since my youth. And most people read that and think, oh, I guess he has. No, he hadn't. He was confused about the very first part of the gospel, which is the law that you are damned before a holy God. And so I have to understand the law 
before I ever want grace. There's a lot of people that think they want grace, but they don't even know they want grace because they don't understand why they need it. So part of the reason that I think we, we mentioned children, conviction is huge, and we've got to allow the gospel to convict before we can really understand the gospel of grace and the things that flow from that. Um, that's a challenge. And number three, with a culture that is saturated with access to the gospel, but without a true understanding of the gospel. Um, it's one of the reasons why, and, and it's even, to me, I'm frustrated now because people are using the word gospel for everything. Like it's synonymous in media and marketing and advertising and, and even in churches, everything is the gospel. Everything is not the gospel. The gospel needs to be well-defined. So we reflected on the statement, almost saved is obviously totally lost. And we can see evidence as we've been talking about this in the Bible Belt that there's a belief in God without a fear of God, which is, uh, in my mind, one of the most prevalent problems we have. You believe in God? Oh, yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people, if you ask them if they're saved, do you know that's how they'll answer? Yeah, I believe in God. James had a lot to say about that. You say you believe in God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder, right? So belief in God's not the gospel. What is the main missing ingredient in much of cultural Christianity, especially in the Bible Belt or in the South? It is repentance. That's an old school word, but it is a biblical word that you cannot be saved until you repent. And unfortunately, the reason that there have been so many false conversions is because of false gospels, because people have believed they could be saved without repenting. If I believe in Jesus, believe that he rose from the dead and ask him to save me of my sins, then I'm saved. That's an incomplete gospel. Why? There's a missing piece. There was no repentance in that. So we gotta, we got to preach a whole gospel. Number seven, are we truly willing to face the reality that many of the people we know and even many who attend church or churches are lost despite being immersed in cultural Christianity? Now, it is not my job or my desire tonight to send out a bunch of Pharisees out of here where everybody would say that you're going to decide who's saved and who's not saved. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that there is, should be an obvious, obvious in someone's life, their testimony should be clear enough that they are saved. Now, we may doubt some of the fruit of their life, but if they don't even have a clear testimony, you're not saved. And you say, well, I'm not, the big, I'm not the greatest talker in the world. I'm not talking about whether you can get up in front of a stadium and preach. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about can you give your testimony, and when you give it, does it include the real, full gospel? And if it does, then all of this we're talking about, this shouldn't scare any true believer. That is not the goal of this Bible study. In fact, every true believer, it should be a reassurance. You should bow your head 
What, now, how does the Pharisee bow his head? Oh, thank you, God, that I'm not like the rest of these people who walk around here and think they're saved but aren't really saved. No, we ought to look a whole lot more like the publican. Oh, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner, and I know you saved me, and I don't know why you saved me, and I know you love me, and I'm overwhelmed by it. If your salvation causes pride, that's not the gospel. You weren't chosen because of who you are or what you did or how wonderful you are. You're chosen because he is holy and sovereign and wonderful and precious. That's what the gospel ought to produce in us. So friends, one of the things I'm thankful for is to do life with a group of regenerate, born-again people who love Jesus and who love the gospel and who stand for truth. I'm thankful for so many of you that I'm positive without a shadow of a doubt that the word has fallen on good soil. And I see fruit of that. It's in your lives um, and in your families. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we bow before you to just say thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you've given us your word. Thank you that we have no reason to be ignorant of the gospel. Thank you for your convicting power. Thank you for the ability to repent. Thank you for your forgiveness. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that in your sovereign grace, that, Lord, we are debtors. Debtors to grace, but a debt we'll never pay back. Thank you, Jesus, for lavishing it on us. We ask it now in your precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.